good afternoon and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. I am Sir Buckley. I am back, as is the Isle. And a happy new year, a happy holidays and a happy Saturday to all of you who have been missing me and the Isle and everyone else who likes to come here. Yes, it's been a while. If you are as addicted to my tweets as you should be, you'll notice I had a little hiatus little holiday from twitter and social media over the holidays it was very refreshing i would heartily recommend it but now i am back so that means a lot to catch up with before we get going with today's episode which is of course the final episode of clash of kings part 12 of 12 for valor and scraps and scrolls a little late but i thought let's leave it a little bit let's leave them wanting over the holidays and i assume that's the advice the business advice and now you get this little cherry on top to get you back into the swing things back into the normal routine of all that good a song of ice and fire content that's coming your way again now that we're, we're rolling back as normal so like i say a lot to catch up with from my twitter hiatus and firstly i have to say a big thank you like i normally do when i start these podcasts turned on my twitter and was flooded with pictures and tweets and messages of people who had very very kindly either bought or received the great castles of westeros as a, as a christmas present or as uh, something for one of their loved ones and that is um very heartwarming that people would consider my my little old book worthy of giving to someone or worthy of asking for a christmas present and uh yeah wonderful so many people not only took the time to take pictures and send them to me but are now getting into it and um and reading it and i'm hoping you're all enjoying or your loved ones are enjoying it as a worthy present or choice for you thank you again and again uh, i promise i will be tweeting all of you back today as I get back into the groove. It was actually a month yesterday, the 3rd of December, The Great Castles of Westeros came out on Amazon. I hadn't even noticed. Uh, I forgot the month anniversary, so I probably should have come back to Twitter then. But never mind, and I will just say thank you again for the whole month of support and retweets and likes and purchases and readings and reviews. Uh, I know it is a big old book, so I'm sure not many of you have finished it yet, but if you do and you would like to leave a review on uh, Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com, I would very much appreciate it and maybe you just want to talk to me send me a message find my me i'd love to know your thoughts i'm sure you found a spelling error or two i'd like to know those too no don't send me those it will send me into a spiral of which i shall never recover and i have to take another hiatus there are other uh, things i need to update you on that have happened while i was away first off was last week i'm sure all of you who are listening to this caught it because you are valar re-readers through and through i was lucky enough to join aziz and lady gwen and Shea, of course on History of Westeros' live stream last Sunday, which was a wrap-up of Clash of Kings as a whole. That's why I've kept this one back, because just in case that wasn't enough Clash of Kings for you, I want to give you one more reminder before we get into the Storm of Swords soon enough. So that was a lot of fun. I missed the wrap-up for Game of Thrones, unfortunately. So that was really good to be back with Lady Gwyn, back with Aziz, and talking all the way through everything we could think of, really, Clash of Kings. I say everything, as obviously always always more to get through and i do actually have some leftover notes that we just didn't have time to get through so i'll do those in a minute because they're kind of related to today but if you haven't seen that please do go and check it out it's a lot of fun lady gwen is able to tell you a little bit more about radio restos's coming episode which i'm sure you're also already on and uh, yeah really good fun not only that yeah i know lucky enough to get invited on one podcast i went on another again one of the more famous pairings in all of uh, a song of ice and fire fandom the guys from Notacast, brendan beefish paul quentin they invited me on it was actually a few weeks ago we recorded but it was a patreon episode for Notacast. 
but they were kind enough to release that to the public as a Christmas present. I think it was this past week. So you can all go and have a listen to that. And the guys invited me on for a long old chat, two or three hour chat about Winterfell specifically. And I'm sure if you've even glanced at the Great Castles of Westeros, you'll know I have a special place in my heart for Winterfell. It is the longest chapter by far. And if you haven't gleaned it from my uh, constant tweets or mutterings on here, just go and listen to that podcast and you can uh, probably see it come through. Very, very honoured to be invited on Not A Cast. I think we all know it's one of the more successful podcasts. Very, very popular, very, very good analysis and uh, breakdown and just uh, top-notch stuff. So to be invited on, that was a, a bit of a dream come true for me kind of professionally wise career wise whatever you want to call it so thank you to the guys for inviting me on thank you to everyone who's listened and um kind of followed me since then whatever else much appreciated and yeah i hope we can keep conversing get in touch i think that's just about everything you need to know uh take it off everyone saying nice things about the book history of westeros live stream not a cast guest appearance yeah i'm very lucky even with my little hiatus i've been pretty busy i must say oh that's it i've forgotten the most important news of all Today, 4th of January, 2020, my little puppy, Princess Zelda, turns one year old. I'm sure you will join me in wishing her a very happy birthday. Don't worry, she's got a new plastic duck. She had cheese sprinkled on her breakfast this morning. She's got it all. Sport little dog. Much more than my birthday, trust me. So yes, happy birthday, Zelda, and thank you for helping me write that book in the first place. So new year, new uh, everything, everything's getting going again. I'm sure we're all really motivated, at least I hope we are. I'd very much like to know if there's anything you guys are taking up, anything that you're going to focus on, whether it's to do with one song of ice and fire or reading or anything like that. Personally, I'm trying to get better at drawing. Now, when I say drawing, I don't want to mislead you. I'm not talking like Vanessa Cole type drawing where she can make, I don't know, TV images out of pencil drawing somehow. She, I still say she's a witch. I'm just talking about, you know, if I can draw a watering can and people say, oh, look, a watering can, I'd be pretty satisfied because I am not, if you've ever seen any of my handwriting, you'd know I'm not very good with pen or pencil. So that's just what something I'd like to improve upon this year. And uh, I have a sketch pad now, so maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I probably won't share any of them with you. That, and of course, I have many of my own fiction writing goals, but I won't bore you with those now. But yeah, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, maybe we can talk about some on the podcast. Now, like as he said on the live stream, Storm of Swords is coming soon. Happy to say that I'll be keeping up Scraps and Scrolls episodes to go along with, uh, with Valoridus from Aziz and the Shea. So that's all normal. Now that the Castles book is gone, and there's a little more time I can concentrate on the podcast a little more. So hopefully just get production a little bit smoother i can confirm that guest episodes will be returning the bread and butter of isla faces that's what we were originally designed for lady buckley will be returning some patron episodes will be going up and it will just all hopefully be a little bit faster than it was when i was spending about nine hours a day writing that castles book and again if you have some advice because but trust me uh, this is not my strong suit podcast producing or sound editing or anything like that if you have any advice or anything you'd wish to see or any comments at all do just give me a bell let me know anything would be greatly received but hopefully new year for isla faces and it'll keep going on the up and up and i deliver what you all deserve and what the fandom deserves fingers crossed now like i said there's some extra notes that i just didn't have time for on the live stream last sunday but luckily i think they actually slip quite well into today's episode today's chapter so i won't go through those now they can just kind of appear as needed speaking of today's episode like i say 12 of 12 we've reached the end of clash of kings well done everybody very much appreciated for you sticking with all the way through so let me run down which chapter specifically we are going to be looking at today we begin with Aya 10 the one with Roose bolton being real creepy even creepier somehow in harrenhal 
Then we move on to Sansa 8, where basically we get a big old receipt of what happened in the Blackwater. Everyone likes to show off exactly what they've won. Then things take a turn. Theon 6, the end of Winterfell. I will try not to get emotional, but I make no promises whatsoever. Don't hold me to it. Back to King's Landing in Tyrion 15, the big 15, and things are not good for Tyrion or his dream state. Way back up north, as north as we ever go, John 8, the end of Corrin. Again, no promises on emotion. And finally, to end the book, Bran 7. Bran and the gang come back up from the crypts to find what has happened to Winterfell, and they leave forever. <sighs> okay, all right, let's do it. So then, I attend. After all the excitement of last week's battle episodes, we now have a full run of final chapters. We've already got rid of a few, Catelyn, obviously, Davos, of course, but now, obviously, all of these are final chapters, ending of all the arcs, and some are focused on the aftermath of the battle, like I just said, while some change a POV's direction entirely, as well as there being truly climactic and devastating ends to the very first building we ever entered in this series, the very first home we ever knew but we'll come to that because right now we're talking about Aya and I'd actually quite forgotten that Aya only spends one chapter as Roos's cupbearer I, I seem to have a, a really bad memory for how long people spend with certain people or in certain places uh, I guess that's just this is just another casualty another mistake of memory slain by Valor Veridis and uh, this is a really important chapter not just for Aya choosing where to go and her future path but for us really getting to know Roos Bolton because, well, we know how big of a role he's going to play in the next book. So let's talk about Roos a bit, because at this point we can begin to remove the question of when Roos Bolton makes his decision to turn on Rob Stark. This chapter has all the facets. The phrase are there, they feature quite heavily in this chapter, and they have this belief that Rob will lose the war, which would have sounded really foolish for most of this book. He's in a really good position, Tywin that's screwed for a lot of this and late Game of Thrones, but it's unfortunate that after all the clashing of kings throughout this novel, Rob has, he's always looked a prime choice to win right until the end, when he's undone by a single victory of the Lannisters and the loss of Winterfell, both of which he had nothing to do with, unless you want to count sending Theon off to the Iron Lions, but that's probably not fair. Also in this chapter we get Glover and Tallheart, they're sent forth to lose more men at Duskendale, and I'm going to saw Aziz mention this, just so we get a symbolic element for anyone not paying attention, Roos goes out hunting wolves. So this is really his declaration, the betrayal starts here, or might have even started before, but this is where things get pretty solidified. Uh, I know Lady Gwen, she spoke about this specifically on the live cast last week, that Rhys returns with these nine dead wolves, and I want to remind you there are nine Starks if you want to cut John and Catelyn and Benjen at the beginning of the series, so George is really slapping us in the face over there. And while we've also established that Rhys is now tipping towards all in on his Stark portrayal. It's also worth noting that the phrase already believe Rob is going to lose, like I just said, and that they might be prepared to do something about it way before any hint of Rob marrying Jane comes along, we should note. It suggests the whole breaking of Rob's marriage pact is a more convenient excuse for the Red Wedding than anything else, especially as Rob is not nearly so counted out as the phrase they insist upon during this chapter. He's still in a really strong position. He's still got all of his men at this point. There's no car Starks running away. There's no uh, any of that. All there is at the moment is Tyrone Lannister has got a big victory and they really want to pay attention to it, the phrase. Before we get to Arya, let's continue with Roos because later in the chapter, Arya witnesses this meeting, this council, if you like, where Roos is at the centre of it. And if you remember, he's just laying on a table in the buff, leeches all over him and talking really quietly, but everyone pays attention. So to this point, 
that quiet voice, that really creepy ability to command has just been hinted at a few times. Uh, Rob mentions it to Bran, etc. But now we get our real best example we ever get, to be honest. He controls this whole meeting with complete authority, like I said, whilst naked and covered in bre- covered in breeches, covered in leeches. So the oddity of leeches and blood filling aside, and I know Aziz got to a lot of that and the more uh, historical and possibly magical elements to it. Aside from all that, it's really hard to imagine a less powerful or more vulnerable position to be in when surrounded by the fellow lords that you are trying to control. But Roos does it, and he does it well. His command and authority, uh, they're completely unquestionable to be us. We've been told this guy means business. And it also occurs to me for the first time that there's only Freys present in this meeting instead of any other Northerners, again giving us clues on where Roos's mindset is, as well as giving us a close-up of some Frey characters are going to be uh, the big dogs later on in the North, such as Sir Anix Frey. For first-time readers, it seems as if the rug has been pulled from under their feet somewhat. So much of this book has been about getting Tywin out of Harrenhal, and considering that 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 would have been a good thing we would have fought throughout the book but now that he's gone that he's gone and, and got this victory at king's landing he's now being fought off as threat again especially by the phrase we as rereaders know that matters in king's landing are going to keep the lannisters busy and there's no back blow coming to harrenhal just yet but in this moment the possibility truly does seem likely so that's fair enough i mentioned glover and tallheart earlier let me read you this quote from roos he says glover has lost a castle and tallheart a son let them take their vengeance on duskendale I think Aziz got to my notes on Duskendale, but it's also crucial that Roos establishes this now as Glover and Tallheart having a reason to act of their own accord. As theoretically, when Roos sees Rob again, Rob will obviously know he didn't give an order to attack Duskendale, so Roos needs a fallback and he needs a scapegoat, basically. He has to be confident in the results of Duskendale as a victory for him personally, as if either Glover or Tallheart return and make it back to Rob, this whole thing falls apart and Roos will not be in good standing. That's all Roos stuff. There's go back to Aya, it's her final chapter after all. And she probably begins this chapter likely feeling some leftover guilt at the results of what she did in her last chapter, which, to remind you, was the kind of overthrow of Harrenhal and letting Roose Bolton in. Because despite the castle now being held by Northmen, who are the good guys, right? Maybe not. Matters seem worse than ever. People who have served alongside Aya, or even before she got there, her basically her equals in this whole horror book, are being murdered or raped in brutal fashion for crimes that are really not crimes at all. Obviously, they had no choice in their serving of the Lannisters in the same way that Arya didn't, and under this logic of punishment, if you want to call it that, or repayment that the Boltons, that Roos specifically, is uh, now ordering upon the castle folk, under that idea, anyone could be sent to the block or the stocks, including Arya or Gendry or absolutely anyone. Whoever comes along next and takes Harrenhal would just do the same thing, and we're going to see a lot of that stupidness. Uh, throughout Storm but we also know that it's going out not only just in Harrenhal but throughout the surrounding area because Vargo Hote is going out and just revisiting the places he was friendly with before when he was working for the Lannisters so it's just ultimate uh, hypocrisy here ultimate stupidity everyone is guilty in this regime and no one wins and Gendry also solidifies this for us reminding us exactly how awful the bloody mummers are and how they feed off this specific type of post-war chaos so it's just it's not good for anyone and though it is phrase mentioned specifically as the rapers in the yard there that's a really tough passage to to read and think about the obvious confusion and realities of war jumbling inside Aya's head at the moment as the phrase are still men on Rob's side committing these atrocities it's northmen it's Freys who are supposed to be on rob's side and it just it doesn't make any sense to her and uh, this it's a, it's a growing up moment i guess 
for her realising that there's evil on both sides. And just to double down that, the phrase is supposed to be Bannerman to her grandfather, so it's really a double realisation there. We spoke of Daenerys's final chapter in our last podcast, serving as her prologue for her storm arc. And in this manner, we see a sort of prologue for both storm and feast, not just for Arya, but for the Riverlands as a whole. Yes, all the actual battles are pretty much done, but that means nothing to the small folk who are going to keep on suffering at the hands of armies and of broken men for a long time to come yet. Yeah, we're going to see that in Jamie's chapters, we're going to see it in Brienne's chapters, we're going to just see it onwards and onwards. Luckily, things do get a bit better for Aya personally, and that all starts with her going to the godswood and hearing the howl of a wolf. It's very similar to many other moments shared by Stark siblings, especially John's recent wolf dreams especially when they're in need of being reminded about their heritage or a direction to follow. But not only does I get those signals, but the memory of Ned's voice and apparently some completely new dialogue from some otherworldly source. We discussed this briefly with Aziz and Lady Gwyn, that this might be Bran in some kind of time travelly thing. It's a great candidate, it definitely points me towards that type of thing. And maybe Aya having greater powers than we've given her credit for, Whatever it is, uh, I definitely didn't remember this new dialogue, and it's uh, not discussed as much as you would think it is. And let me read you this quote from Iron because it's a it's a doozy. I am a direwolf and done with wooden teeth. Hmm. Okay. What did Dywin ever do to you? He's got wooden teeth and he's a pretty cool guy. But but aside from that, Iron isn't messing around anymore. Although violence isn't new to her, she's now taking a conscious step into being even more violent and truly leaving her own innocence behind because basically she's got no other choice. It's either that or stay here at Harren Hall and wait for either the Boltons or the Bloody Mummers to do something really terrible to you. And as we see in a moment with her killing of the guard and her actions from here on out, that's just her path now. It's a required path for her. And the killing of the guard is an almost even split between the two great forces in Aya's life. On one hand, the man is a Northman, and that fact obviously weighs more heavily on her than if he were just a Frey or someone else. Aya really senses that this is a new line she is crossing. On the other hand, the faceless men are also present in this scene. Not only is it their coin used to enable the murder, but Aya uses their words as well. If you remember, she drops the coin that uh, Jacques and Akar gave her, the man bends down, and Aya slits his throat and then says the good old faceless man motto. And the planning and cold-blooded nature of this, combined with her overall plan of escape, goes a long way to show Aya's progression since the beginning of the book when she was just rolling around in the dirt with Hot Pie and Lommy, uh, smuggled out of the city by Yorin. They're all gone, really. Now Aya just has her own wits to depend upon, and she's not waiting around, like we say. She knows it's time, she's going to need a plan, she's going to need to get her hands dirty, and she does it. And off she goes into a new arc. Okay. Let's go straight to Sansa 8, down to King's Landing. Sansa 8, it's got to be said, is not so much a Sansa chapter as it is a receipt for all the damages and the prizes of the Blackwater to be totted up and see who comes up smelling of roses. Hint, hint there. I mentioned uh, in my notes to Aziz that I think he got to that there's a, a real big emphasis on everyone looking really nice and it's real propaganda-ish or everyone's got to come out looking resplendent from this horrible battle. But obviously the reverse is... These people, for the most part, did nothing to actually help the city. But Tyrion, who is the classic ugly character, has now become even uglier with the loss of his nose, actually did do all the saving, yet he's completely forgotten. He's nowhere in this chapter. No one, He's not there physically, no one mentions him. Um, Sansa thinks of him very quickly, but he's just not part of it. And of course, although Tywin would never actually admit to caring what people thought of his appearance or anything of that nature, he completely joins in with this showing-off type thing. Let me show you, let me read to you Sansa's quote on uh, the big man's entry. Sansa had never seen such armour, 
all burnished red steel, inlaid with golden scrollwork and ornamentation. His rondels were sunbursts, the roaring lion that crowned his helm had ruby eyes, and a lioness on each shoulder fastened a cloth of gold cloak, so long and heavy that it draped the hindquarters of his charger. Even the horse's armour was gilded, and his bardings were shimmering crimson silk, emblazoned with the Lion of Lannister. So yeah, I, re- I think Tywin might be trying to say something here. He might be trying to say, hey, I am here and I am in charge. Tyrion, like I say, he's forgotten. That didn't even happen, really. I'm here now, forget Ned Stark, all of that. Don't even really pay attention to Joffrey. I am here to show off and I'm going to let you know about it. Because we've got to remember, this has been a real bad book. A book and a quarter, if you want to take in Game of Thrones, for Tywin. He suffered defeat at the Green Fork. Rob clearly had the advantage of him whilst he was in Harrenhal. And he really did have enemies on every direction, if you remember our earlier uh, episodes from this from this book. Easily could have gone very, very differently. Renly was coming from the south. Stannis was coming from the east. Bruce was up there in the north. And Rob was burning his own homeland. So it really wasn't going well. He needed a win bad. So now that he's got one, and a major one at that, he's going to milk it. And he's absolutely not suffering anything less than complete satisfaction and power. He's really <laughs> going to be like, right, I've had enough of this shit, now I'm in control. And of course, it all ends up with uh, the horse's dung at the end telling you exactly what all the fancy clothing is really worth. Another quote here, this one from the other golden-haired man, Joffrey. The roses support the lion, and that's important. The roses support the lion, as the might of Highgarden supports the realm, proclaimed Joffrey. Now, to me, this is the point where the Lannisters really just stop bothering to remind everyone that Joffrey is a Baratheon. It's almost as if to say, look, we've just defeated a Baratheon and Stannis, we've put up with riots and a battle and everything else, we aren't pandering to you anymore. Some of it does have to do with Stannis being a Baratheon, so uh, that surname kind of becomes a curse word, they don't want to link Joffrey to it too much, and they're really... um, they're really that's not going to say the words Joffrey Baratheon unless they really have to. Game of Friends and Clash of Kings, they bother to remind everyone that Joffrey is a stag. From here on out, through Storm and uh, all the other books, they're really not bothering. Joffrey is pretty much just a lion and uh, no one bothers to correct it. Now talking of the Tyrells getting involved, we can understand that this chapter must play pretty heavily into Cersei's hatred of her new in-laws because, uh, like as he's mentioned, another one of my notes he got to, the Tyrells really get in quick and they get in deep here. And it took Cersei years to achieve that kind of um, assimilation. All her efforts to instill herself into Robert's court, they look kind of rubbish now, and she, she's really not happy about it. Now, another thing that Aziz got to uh, mention was that Littlefinger, he makes a big jump here. He gets Harrenhal, he becomes Lord Paramount of the Riverlands, and it makes a big jump. Now, that's all well and good for him, but it shouldn't be ignored that it's also benefit for the Lannisters. Littlefinger is now, in theory, responsible for a burned, harrowed land and a land that was burnt and harrowed by the Lannisters and Tywin himself. And it also allows Tywin to give up River Run to the Freys later on without making the Freys the Lord Paramount. Obviously, River Run had remained the uh, the seat of the Riverlands, then that would have been a much bigger deal giving them River Run, but that's not the case. Of course, Littlefinger knows all this and he plays on it to get the same result. And to be honest, he could not care less what state the Riverlands are in. We know from Benefit of Reread, He's not going to come in and uh, save the Riverlands in any way. He's not going to help out. They're just going to stay in the horrible mess that they are. But the the throne can claim that it's not their problem anymore, which is the big thing. There's also a great deal of healing that goes on during this court session. The Reach has made hold again. There's no more, some of the, well, for the most part, 
there's no more some of these are for Stannis some of these are for Renly's memory and the Lannisters Crownlands aside from Dragonstone they're kind of brought back into the fold even the Stormlands re-enter the Crown's Peace but that that one's a lot more dicey than the other two speaking of Stannis we said last time out that there was a lot of evidence during the battle of people becoming genuinely loyal to Stannis and that continues to show here through this session as many of the prisoners they refuse to kneel now you can make the argument that some of those are just loyal to the law that's who's earned their loyalty not Stannis himself but I'm sure for many it is the the actual supposed one and true king Let's move from Stannis to another uh, so-said king in Joffrey. Let me read you this quote. He chopped down with his hand, a furious, angry gesture, and screeched in pain when his arm brushed against one of the sharp metal fangs that surrounded him. The bright crimson samite of his sleeve turned a darker shade of red as his blood soaked through it. Mother, he wailed. So Joffrey, he had to be fed to him. He does one of his better jobs of playing his role throughout all of this. He keeps it kosher for the majority of the session until someone threatens his legitimacy directly it's one of these prisoners calling him out saying he's a bastard and all these things and that's when he he loses it he just can't handle that instantly his true self comes out and that will result in him cutting himself on the throne so this whole ceremony and all that good work that joffrey's just put in that's all been undercut as it was with the dung the king having to wail for his mother also doesn't really inspire people who are now having to kneel kneel to him but being cut by the throne is incredibly symbolic to the Westerosi and it's the kind of thing that enemies uh, can really seize on as well as the small folk, they'll let it fester among them. Now something I brought up with Lady Gwyn and Aziz on Sunday was the fact that throughout this book I've been comparing Sansa and Aya's arcs and that's something that's going to become a lot more difficult in Storm and Beyond and here we really get a large deviation. Aya's final chapter is about her taking control of her situation and escaping a huge castle. That option is obviously not available to Sansa. She doesn't get to escape or take control, but like Aya, she is in a much different place mentally to the beginning of this book. I think that this chapter perfectly represents that. Besides, the circumstances of her imprisonment have changed, and Dontos finally comes through with a concrete part of his promise. Some actual details and dates both Sansa and the reader can latch onto which also goes to show that Littlefinger is not satisfied with his best ever day at the office and is now confirming his next part of the plan. And finally for this chapter, let me mention that Dontos actually says, quote, the night of Joffrey's wedding, after the feast. So it's worth noting that this has changed between now and the fact, and uh, I don't really know why, but there we go. And since this fits quite well with Sansa, this is one of the, the notes I didn't have time to get to on Sunday, but it feels like a number of the final POV chapters feel really separate and divided from that particular character's Clash of Kings art. Some are saved from that fate, Davos and Theon and Jon, they all have a lot of action in them, so they're quite similar to the rest of their particular arcs. But Sansa's final chapter really doesn't feel about Sansa at all. Like I said, it's about the aftermath of the Blackwater. Tyrion's final chapters, we're going to see, that doesn't feel like a Tyrion chapter. We're used to him being up and doing things, and in this one, later on, he just lies and dreams, and we don't usually associate dreams with Tyrion. Even Catelyn's last POV and our last time out, it doesn't feel right to us. She's been despondent throughout the book, but not to this level, and it feels more like a Jamie prologue. Obviously, this is the shortest gap between the release of the books, and I'm talking about Clash of Kings and Storm of Sword, so I like to take this as a sign that George knows what he has in the storm. He was just chomping at the bit to get to all that stuff. That's why so many of these end chapters feel a bit more stormy than they do clashy. But anyway, that's enough of Sansa and King's Landing for now. Now we're going back up north to Winterfell and to Theon's final chapter. Theon 6. All that, <laughs> that good Theon downfall is all in six chapters. So in Theon's last chapter, last time... 
His refusal to abandon Winterfell was rooted in the belief that doing so would make him a failure compared to Asher. So if you remember, that's when Asher came and tried to get him to leave smartly, but he refused. This chapter continues with that theme, but now it's more focused on Balon. Leaving Winterfell now would eradicate any chance of earning Balon's respect, which we all know is a train long since left the station, but Theon seems to not realise that. And we can see how deep-rooted that need is in Theon that he would go this far for even a 1% chance of earning said love. Now, while it does say something about Winterfell and about Winterfell's walls, uh, this is something that me and Paul Quentin and Brendan Beefish were able to discuss on the podcast, even though it says something about Winterfell, that he can even entertain the idea that the, the defences, the castle defences are good enough that so few of them could hold off an army 2,000 strong for more than, you know, a minute. Ultimately, he knows this is a last stand type of deal, the glory that uh, I think it's either Dagmar Cleftjaw or possibly Lauren or one of the other ones spoke of, rather than any serious plan for victory. Aside from Wex, who likely believes he is merely fulfilling his role as a loyal squire, I don't believe that any of the remaining 16 who cross the line that Fionn draws in the Winterfell Yard and invites them to cross, I don't believe any of them are doing it for Fionn, but rather for a chance at that glorious death, because they probably think, well, even if we run, we're just going to be hunted down or something bad's going to happen to us anyway, so we might as well do it here bravely. Now, this, this is a, a good quote I had to include. So this is uh, when Mace Lewin comes to Fionn and floats the idea of Fionn joining the Night's Watch. It's a really good uh, passage. I have black garb plenty. once I tear the krakens off. Even my horse is black. I could rise high in the Watch. The Chief of Rangers, likely even Lord Commander. Let Asher keep the bloody islands. They're as dreary as she is. So Fionn's art contains... So many laughable moments, but th this is the final one. This is the last laugh of Fionn's clash arc. The instant idea that Fionn could just walk into command and eventually become the Lord Commander is brilliantly humorous, and it just goes to show he has learned very few lessons from any of this that's happened to him since he returned to Pike. Lewin's actual message, or any of the realities that John had to learn at the Wall, they don't even cross Fionn's mind. They just don't exist to him. To him, it's just a cakewalk, like the taking of Winterfell was. Again, just no learning of lessons. And as if we didn't know, Fionn confirms here that he doesn't actually care about the Ionines in the slightest. He is 100% motivated by material comforts and sticking it to his family, either one of them, uh, tear the Kraken off indeed. For all of that, I do find the idea of Fionn at the wall one of the more intriguing missed opportunities. It would be very fun to imagine just how he would fare up there when he gets there and obviously it is not what he expects. Moving on to later in the chapter, when Fionn goes to meet with Sir Roderick outside the walls, it takes roughly 10 seconds for that parlay to just become an argument about whether Fionn is Stark or Greyjoy. He simply just can't let go of this core argument, the core argument of his whole arc in this book. And it's one that really no one else gives a twig about. They don't care, it doesn't really matter to them. It's the castle they're trying to save. But even when there's a very pressing siege to deal with, Fionn just wants to argue about it. Roderick is also the first one to bestow the Fionn Turncloak moniker, and that's one that Fionn is going to ca carry through the rest of the series. It's interesting that this name gets out given Roderick dies here, and most of the northern men with him. Then again, I suppose it's not a particularly hard name to arrive at whether you're present at the battle or not, and the Boltons will certainly be pushing the story of Fionn being the one to burn Winterfell, so I guess it does make sense. We've spoken before of Roderick being too merciful when it, come to, when it came to Reek beforehand, and it seems he's done it again. As honourable as he may want to be, Roderick surely knows the castle better than Theon, and certainly has the capability to send 20 men over the walls without immediately being seen. True, this does put Beth at risk, but there's definitely the sense that Roderick could have taken the castle if he'd really put his mind to it. But obviously, 
that was not to be. And again, speaking of laughs, there is the idea of Fionn comparing his time at Winterfell to Beth Cassell being threatened with execution and hanging, and I don't think I need to explain how moronic that is and what bad take Fionn has there. To go along with the what-ifs of this chapter is if the Hornwood arguments had never occurred, thereby allowing Roderick to gather and unite even more of the North in the first place and eventually arriving at Winterfell, if it had even been taken, as he theoretically wouldn't have had to take so many men to Winterfell with him to Tyne Square, with an army too greatly numbered for Ramsay 600 to have made a difference. Also, just a side note, 600 is the believed number that, the believed number that Ramsay has riding towards Stannis in the in Winds of Winter, for whatever that's worth. And that is a Theon's last chapter. Goodbye, Theon. We'll get to the crime of Winterfell's death in a second. Now we're taking our final trip back down south, back to King's Landing, for Tyrion 15. So while Aya frees herself from Harrenhal and Sansa at least semi gets away from Joffrey, half of our chapters today are quite far from happy or even having promising endings. John can kind of be taken either way depending on your viewpoint. Theon, obviously if we've just seen, he goes down hard. Bran gets the promise of a new adventure but he has to witness the death of his beloved home. We'll come to that. But Tyrion's fall is perhaps the loudest. This is his 15th chapter overall, a mark only ever equaled by Ned Stark himself. He has been the undoubted main character of this book, he's tasted the highest of his highs, and even arranged the miraculous defence of his city against the almost certain odds of defeat. And now, here at the end, he's lost it all. Again, I have to make the argument that Tyrion has been far more affected by his battlefield experience than we give him credit for, as experienced by his early dream of rejetting the battlefield. That's one of the first things we get in this chapter. The experience of being in the middle of the inferno would have been bad enough, but Tyrion has the added guilt of knowing he he was responsible for that terrible element of the wildfire and the burning bridge. He added that to the proceedings. And Aziz was able to uh, get to some of my notes on that extra guilt that weighs down on Tyrion. Moving on from the dreams, the physical world brings no relief for him. When last awake, he was the half-man. He was the hero of the city and the people, someone finally physically capable of really making a change in the world. Now he discovers that not only has he returned to his normal imp image, he's actually gotten much worse. Tyrion has suffered the slights of deformity all his life. To have another stacked upon him now as a doubling down on what he feels is most people looking down on him. Moreover, his being wounded makes it seem publicly that he did not acquit himself well on the battlefield, something else we know to be untrue. So this loss and affront to his nature, especially the idea that he is unlovable, physically uh, or elsewise, will speed up his descent in Storm, particularly when we start thinking of it in terms of his relationship to Shay. Speaking of Shay, this is the, the first fallout from Cersei's capture of Alayea as Shay, and much like Cersei pushed Tyrion into acting the monster, Tyrion now steadfastly believes it was Cersei who sent Mandamore, and he may well be right to be fair, which is obviously going to have another impact in Storm as brother and sisters try to outdo one another in their vengeance. So up until this point, Tyrion had only remembered and revealed his time with Tysha through the lens of its intensely painful ending, which is obviously a very important point to consider. But now, as possibly his lowest point since that time, his mind returns to the intimate joy he actually experienced with Tysha at the time. For first-time readers, it is fun to actually see Tyrion happy just for a paragraph or two, yet obviously bitter because we know how it's going to end. For rereaders, it's far worse because we know Tyrion's summary that the happiest time of his life is a lie is itself false. So it's just a, a real double down here. I think his mind is specifically taking back to a time where his true love was confirming she loved his body and face because, again, the focus is on his just lost nose and the fact that his physicality has become even worse for him. So now we head back to the dreams. Because Tyrion's next dream 
equally wraps up all his true desires into one neat little package. The recognition he briefly experiences the half-man, approval from his father, finally joining the ranks of true men via their best representation of Jamie, in his, in his opinion, and true and open love and adoration from Shay. All before he wakes up to quickly discover not only does he not have all of those things, but he's lost what he did have. Most importantly, the greatest boon ever granted to him in his office as hand. That was his leverage into power into these highest of highs that we've experienced and his niche it was what he was good at and it's gone his place in the world that he has struggled so long to find has been taken from him and taken from him by his father which is something we should not ignore and there we leave Tyrion unfortunately now we return to the north we actually go beyond the wall and it's time for John 8 so between this chapter and John 7, we've had the entirety of the Blackwater, Winterfell's Fall, the aftermath of the Blackwater, plus some Iron Daenerys chapters thrown in. That's all between John's exhilarating last chapter, The Running Away, and this one. So it's quite easy to forget the action intensity of John and Corrin running from the wildlings through the very wildest of wildernesses. And that's tough to say, believe me. So we instantly learn that their efforts have been in vain and the escape has failed. That's the beginning of the chapter, straight on. Even before George details how that actually came to be. We're denied even a chance to hope and yet still become incredibly invested in what happened to Stone Snake and Eben for what is one of the best stretches of John's entire arc. We know it's fast coming to an end and yet we're kind of grasping that it can last a bit longer. Definitely, in my view, John's Corrin arc is far superior to his ranging arc in this book. And again, we we all discussed that at length on the live show on Sunday. And we've got a quote from uh, early on in the chapter. Corrin insisted that the rangers mix some of the Garen's blood with their oats to give them strength. The taste of that foul porridge almost choked John, but he forced it down. I just mentioned that very quickly because that's got some strong brand slash Jojen paste vibes to me. And uh, I, I wrote that in conjunction with some notes on the magical dreams and their power that he's got to those uh, on their last show. So there's a bit of irony in Eben trying to give John his way out and a chance for survival. He does it very nobly indeed, only to end up dead himself. And it's just reminding us that the eagle and the powers of warging that John still represents simply can't be beaten in, the, in this circumstance. Stone Snake, meanwhile, is one of the mysteries that keeps me up the most. I truly hope that this isn't one of those loose threads that has to be sacrificed in the winds of winter and that we do learn something of him, and hopefully not that he just died. Perhaps he's hooked up with Benjen, maybe. That would be the best case scenario for me, as Benjen would then have information about Jon's warging ability if he doesn't already. I would be very interested to see what he does with that. And whilst we're talking of warging, I have another quote for you. Tell him that the old powers are waking, that he faces giants and wolves and worse. Tell him that the trees have eyes again. So this is Corrin's message that he's sending away to hopefully get to Dior. Now, we know it never makes it to the old bear, but I would have loved to see how he might have reacted to yet another confirmation of news that he already knows, really. Would this have been enough to finally kick him into the correct course of action? If, if Corrin is saying it, is that enough for Dior to really get going? We spoke of this briefly in John's last chapter, but it's interesting that Corrin is focusing on this side of things rather than the simple facts about Mance. And it really gets you wondering what else Corrin has seen of late and what, what he's thinking in his head. Now we have that final fire scene between John and Corrin where uh, John has to recite his vows and it's a very clever way to go about it for Corrin. He leaves John little choice to manoeuvre out, out of it. Not that Corrin is chicking John in any way. We already know that he knows his men. He knows Jon Snow. 
and he has the faith in his strength to do this task which is harder than dying his labeling of it as such shows off just what these vows mean to Corrin himself and Corrin he keeps talking about John's sword being sharp and first time readers they're kind of slaves to this cliche at this point all of us were likely thinking there would be some kind of classic standoff primed through Corrin's choice of where to stop and imagining and not imagining what he actually had planned. John also brings up how good a swordsman Corrin actually is very shortly before he's going to duel and defeat him. And remember, Corrin commits to the bit. He does not go easy on John, which we'll get to in a sec. And in terms of Corrin's ability, let me read you this quote. The tale of how he had taught himself to fight with his left hand after losing half of his right was part of his legend. It was said that he handled a blade better now than he ever had before. Yeah, get your act together, Jamie. Corrin can do it, so can you. So we have this standoff, we have this uh, stopping finally of Corrin, and Rattleshirt comes along. And even in this short meeting with uh, Rattleshirt's group, John gets a crash course in how wildlings work, how their leadership structure is like nothing else he's seen, how they truly are these deep and complex people, and they're not merely a bland bunch of hunters or savages. So again, we're getting the setting of the seeds for what he will come to appreciate in Storm, and then base his policies on in Dance. But moving past that, we get to the duel itself, and Corrin versus John is one of the best duels in the entire series, hands down. It seems so long since John's early chapters of the war where he, we got his inner monologue on how he specifically thinks through a fight, but all that prep at Castle Black or with Sir Roderick, none of it prepares him for his first true duel, duel to the death, against a legendary swordsman no less. And it's so very interesting that John needs Ghost to actually finish the battle. With that final swipe, Corrin not only gets a much cleaner death than he would have ever got with Rattleshirt, but John is now plunged into a completely unknown world, one where he and Ghost are truly alone among strangers, and one that's going to mean so much going forward for him, the wall, and for the fortunes of all the North against the coming dead. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty important chapter, <laughs> if I'm not getting that across. But now, we come to the final chapter of A Clash of Kings, we wrap today up with Bran 7. So to tie this in with John, I think George very easily could have had that John chapter be the final chapter of this book, it's closer to the supernatural ending we've got with Daenerys in Game of Thrones with his kind of walk fighting. It continues to set up Jon and Daenerys as mirrors as the pillars of the story. And Game finishes with fire so Clash could have finished with ice, etc. But ultimately, I believe he chooses to end with Bran, not even specifically because of Bran himself, in my personal opinion, but because this is the death of Winterfell. This is the home we were first introduced to, the opening of the entire series, and it is now gone. This has to be the message of the whole book, that there are casualties that have come from this clash, and the largest is the removal of the symbol of safety and continuity for both in-world characters and for us readers. George is telling us, aloud and clear, prepare for the worst. Your training wheels have just come off, and Storm certainly delivers on that message. If you want to buy into the idea that each book has one big death, at least, then here we go. Game of Thrones has Ned, no argument. Storm of Swords has Rob and Catelyn, or Tywin, or Joffrey, or Lysa, take your pick. Feast is an outlier, that's true, but Dance has Jon, obviously, so who is the big death in Clash of Kings? Renly? Hmm, sorry, no, no, no. It is Winterfell. Clash of Kings is also where all the big events become public. In Game of Thrones, the big public events were Robert and Ned dying, but kings die all the time, that's nothing major. The war, the war is kept up until the end of the book, Daenerys is miles away, 
But in Clash of Kings, there's a Riverlands being scorched like never before with recorded history. There's a river set on fire in the biggest ever assault on King's Landing. Storm's End surrenders, Harrenhal falls, and Winterfell falls, all within months of each other. It's really ripping away at the foundation of what the Westerosi buy into. And Winterfell's definitely the largest symbol of that because it's been around the longest. It's, that its whole point is that it never fails, even over, over 8,000 years. And now it has. So that's a really big deal, not just to the Stark family, but to the whole fabric of society in Westeros. These things aren't supposed to happen. They're just supposed to stay the same. And it, we know the after effects of that. And Aziz spoke about my notes on how Ramsay really goes out of his way to destroy Winterfell. And it, it didn't need to, really. But it remains one of my favourite facts in the entire series that Ramsay ultimately fails. Winterfell survives this attack. Nothing so insignificant as Ramsay Snow would ever be able to end it. And besides, uh, uh, Bolton did do this before, we we know for our histories. And it just happened to be fine in the larger scale of things. That's not really remembered. So if it happened once, it can happen again and Winterfell can come back stronger than ever. I've said elsewhere, and I don't wish to repeat myself, but the leaking of the spring water is incredibly symbolic. And when I say elsewhere, I mean we discussed it on Nottercast at some length. The leaking of the spring water from the library wall is it's basically Winterfell's blood literally being spilled, not only in terms of what keeps the castle alive, but of its wider contract and purpose of keeping the north safe from the cold winds of winter. And again, I encourage you to go to listen to uh, Nottercast because Paul Quentin and Brendan Friedrich were much more eloquent than I than uh, saying agreeing with that point. Let's move on to Bran himself. So the fact that Bran was in Summer's body for three whole days is pretty huge, if we're honest about it. Again, looking back on his earlier interactions with his his warging power not only is it an obvious massive leap forward both in his powers and his apparent eagerness to now explore those powers but it's the first introduction we get to the idea that there is such a thing as going too far this can be in terms of the physical and looking after Bran's actual body but also the mental and that Bran could drift away and never return to the real world and this is a danger that will remain with him for the rest of the arc and represents a, a very real worry that many fans have about Bran's eventual fate and again that's something we discussed uh, last Sunday about whether Bran will get to leave and never come home again as it is so promised here. But all I actually have to say about Bran himself, I really have to concentrate on Winterfell. And I do have to say Aziz got to the majority of my notes on this chapter. But here's my final one for today. We finally come to an end that we saw right back at the beginning. And it's this death of a maester who truly loved his charges. We spoke way, way back in the prologue of Clash of Kings about the similarities between Crescent and Lewin. And both being unbelievers who eventually come up short about seeing those they serve as family. And in this read, it really comes through that both maces valued their adopted family more than their vows. It, this wasn't a job. This was family to them. They were protecting Bran. And it's a real nice point that Lewin gets to see the boys alive and uh, gets to see them, send them off on their way. And that he gets to die in the godswood, which is obviously such an important part of uh, Winterfell's makeup and what makes it so special i've spoke about that in other places one specific very large uh, place i won't remind you of now but it's being the the godswood is special considering that place's history and how important it was to ned and, and everything else but finally uh, yeah as bran notes when bran and rickon and the others they are not done yet he is alive bran i mean and so is winterfell as i've said so many times before Winterfell will come back and something like the evil of the Boltons simply isn't enough to stop it. Not after everything it's been through and everything it still has to come. And if you would like to hear further thoughts, lots of them uh, are, are from me on Winterfell, 
you need only look to the great castles of Westeros. So that, everybody, is Clash of Kings. For my overall thoughts on the book, you can just head over to YouTube, look at the live stream with myself and Aziz and Ashea and Lady Gwyn from this past Sunday. A lot of fun. Again, I encourage you to go to Notocast. I'm sure all of you already are. And again, a very, very large thank you to all of you, not only for the past couple of weeks of sending me these pictures of uh, you opening my book and being, uh, it seems to be overjoyed with it, it's, it carries a very special place in my heart, but the support I've had over the past month of its release. I hope you've enjoyed the Scraps and Scrolls episode, all 12 of them for uh, Clash of Kings. To be fair, if you'd asked me after my first read, I probably would have said Clash of Kings was my least favourite book, and... Uh, obviously that was some time ago and if you ask me now why I thought that I couldn't tell you I really don't because it is a very very enjoyable book I've enjoyed doing these podcasts even with them being alongside the writing of uh, uh, Great Castles of Westeros that won't be the case for Storm I'm happy to report so I can hopefully get a few more longer episodes and like I say I'm trying to learn production and all these things on the fly Please do get in touch. Please do interact with the podcast. I will be back with Lady Buckley at some point. I will have guest episodes and more specials coming your way. Hopefully the Isle of Faces can continue to live up to its original purpose. But for now, I will just say thank you for coming along for Clash of Kings. See you again in a few short weeks for Storm of Swords number one. And uh, thanks again, especially to Aziz and Ashea for their continued allowing of me to... Uh, help them out with this great project thank you everybody happy new year and see you soon